Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, you might have noticed that I missed an episode last week and I missed visiting with you guys, but I was visiting my daughter and my son-in-law and her new son and my granddaughter as well. And it was such a joy to spend last week with them. And also another new development in my life over the last week, I have returned to seminary. I went to seminary about 20 years ago and um, had to pause my education as I had my firstborn daughter, and then we moved overseas to be missionaries. And sadly, those credits have expired, so I am starting fresh again. I am a new student at Reformed Theological Seminary going to their global campus, so totally online. I am pursuing a Master's of Theological Studies. So things are changing here in my life. My girls are in high school. I'm not homeschooling anybody at home. The house is kind of quiet during the day. But I will admit, while they're quiet, they remain kind of crazy. Um, As I continue to write for various outlets, continue pursuing book writing and ministry in my own home church, plus raising my daughters still. Um, And I'm realizing that my All Things episodes really need to be a little bit shorter. I've got to find a way to take smaller bites and produce shorter episodes. So I'm going to be trying that out um, here in the next few weeks and even hoping that this episode that I record right now will be a little bit shorter. But I do love doing this. I just love interacting with with you all as listeners and just seeing what's going on in the headlines and really applying a biblical lens to them to see what God might be doing in this particular cultural moment. So that episode that I recorded two weeks ago regarding the devastation in Afghanistan, I really appreciate all of the listener feedback to that end. So many of you reached out with comments and DMs to thank me for that episode, just as you were struggling, as was I, in knowing how to think about what was transpiring in Afghanistan at that time. Um, and I just can't say enough that I appreciate you all for engaging. It's this is um, exploring these current events for me is a joy, but when you come alongside and we can do it as a community and your conversations even go back to your dinner tables and your small groups, that is really um, an encouragement to me in a way that I think God works through the body, even as we are not in the same location. But just in circling back to that episode, I want to say again, a, a thank you to the missionaries and to the military members who shared their hearts with me and their perspectives with me as I prepared that podcast. I know that you all are grieving. We are all grieving over what has happened, especially in the last few days in Afghanistan. My heart goes out to you. I'm praying for you, and I want to just encourage you to keep talking about your grief and keep sharing it. And of course, you all know since that episode was recorded, um, since then, the terrorist attack happened at the Kabul airport and claimed the lives of 13 U.S. service members, which is incredibly heartbreaking. Um, Just such a um, sad thing to see the photos of them serving the Afghan people, serving their country very well in just the hours before that attack. And then of course their lives being taken. And of course the lives of um, up to 200 Afghans is what we've um, read in the news. And um, you know, the sad reality of President Biden calling this a success, but nearly everyone else on the planet calling it a tragedy and something that is sure to lead to an increase in terrorism, not only in that region, but also throughout the world. But thankfully I am seeing the church respond. Um, as, as we all know, so many people were left behind in Afghanistan and that is just a grave injustice. But I love to see so many Americans who have hurried to donate time and money and supplies and efforts to help resettle Afghan refugees here in the United States. Um, If you don't know already, refugees are a very specific kind of population. Go back to episode 57 to check that out. But refugees are a vetted specific population. And there are tens of thousands of Afghans who have a um, special immigrant visas 
making them a special class of refugees who could and should be quickly resettled back here into the U.S. And I'm, I'm just proud of my friends um, especially some in my own home church who are diving in. They're finding out how they can um, help through maybe mentoring or through material donations and other ways, um, Afghans who find themselves back here in Colorado. So if you're continuing to feel heartbroken about that situation, know that there is work to be done even here on the ground and that you can channel some of your discouragement um, to prayer first and foremost. Um, but secondly, there are organizations undoubtedly near you that are going to be serving those refugees and you can get involved. But I want to go ahead and just change subjects here. So while those events were unfolding in Afghanistan, other things, of course, were taking place around the globe, and specifically a couple things right here in the U.S. and close to the U.S. There were two natural disasters, um, especially, that really grabbed our hearts and our minds and our eyes, and they got me thinking about the connection between poverty and natural disasters. So we're going to take time to look at that on this particular episode. I want to look at the recent natural disasters in Haiti, as well as in New Orleans, and um, just take a look at the relationship between what you know, what the cycle between poverty and disasters, and the cycle between disasters and poverty. The two are linked, and that's where I kind of camped out this week. So, on the morning of August fourteenth, so a couple weeks ago, a magnitude seven point two earthquake struck the southwest of Haiti. Just under a million people live within 31 miles of the epicenter. The death toll has grown recently to 2,207 Haitians with 344 people still missing. Well, right after that, Haiti experienced a direct hit from Tropical Depression Grace um, on the night of August 16th. And so humanitarian teams that had been um, trying to bring relief to people who were devastated by the earthquake, they had to slow down or even stop their operations. They had to stop bringing supplies in. And then, of course, countless Haitians who had lost their homes or who were choosing to remain outside because they were afraid of aftershocks, they were huddled under tarps and just trying to find shelter now from this tropical depression while it dumped inches of rain caused landslides, which, um, you know, blocked highways and blocked relief efforts. So things in Haiti just over the last couple of weeks have been especially devastating, but that is in a backdrop of decades, lifetimes of other disasters and other things that lead to in- instability and a lack of peace in Haiti. So just in investigating kind of what the context of Haiti is, I want to just share and um, dwell on that here for the next couple minutes, but the UN said specifically, the back-to-back disasters are exacerbating pre-existing vulnerabilities. At the time of the disaster, Haiti is still reeling from this July 7th assassination of their president and still facing an escalation in gang violence since June that has affected 1.5 million people with at least 19,000 displaced in the metropolitan area of Port-au-Prince. The compounded effects of an ongoing political crisis, socioeconomic challenges, food insecurity, and gang violence continue to greatly worsen an already precarious humanitarian situation. So the UN says 4.4 million people, or nearly 46% of the population, face acute food insecurity, including 1.2 million who are in emergency levels and 3.2 million who are in crisis levels. There's an estimated 217,000 children suffering from moderate to severe acute malnutrition. So the UN painting for us just a really bleak picture in the ways that things like politics, socioeconomics, gang violence, as well as food insecurity, and even these natural disasters all play into one another. 
The World Bank says, in addition to the challenges posed by the pandemic and the political stalemate, Haiti remains highly vulnerable to natural hazards, mainly hurricanes, floods, and earthquakes. More than 96% of the population is exposed to these types of shocks. So in other words, almost everybody in Haiti is really vulnerable or exposed to what's going on to these various um, disasters. The World Food Program says 77% of people in the affected area um, in Haiti live in poverty. And Human Rights Watch says protracted political instability and gang violence in 2020, often with state ties. So gang violence with state ties, meaning that um, gang activity is related to those who are in political power, contributed to the Haitian government's inability to meet the basic needs of its people, resolve longstanding human rights problems, and address humanitarian crises. So that's kind of the situation that's going on in Haiti. Haiti's obviously nearby, um, just a neighbor of the United States. And so to think of that kind of suffering taking place right here in our own hemisphere, not too far away, it's just really overwhelming, honestly, quite paralyzing even, and just um, just causes so much grief as we think about um, Haitian families, children, people born into that situation, and really just taking it, taking hits from all sides of life there. Okay, well, moving stateside then to another disaster that was unfolding kind of at the same time that the disaster in Afghanistan was unfolding on August 29th. So now this is just a few days ago. Hurricane Ida, as you know, made landfall as a category four storm southwest of New Orleans. The storm was one of the most intense hurricanes to ever hit the state with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour, causing widespread power outages, flooding, and at least four deaths. Hurricane Ida struck Louisiana exactly 16 years after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans in 2005. So obviously all of us just sort of glued to um, the TV or glued to our social media seeing Hurricane Ida hit New Orleans and just remembering the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Well, Ida was the fifth most powerful hurricane to strike the U.S. and some low-lying communities remain largely underwater even today. Roughly a million homes and businesses still have no electricity, and health officials have said that more than 600,000 people lack running water. Now, the death toll there has risen to at least six. After today, a coroner confirmed that a 65-year-old woman had drowned in her home, and police in Maryland, so now the um, hurricane has moved north, but police in Maryland say that a 19-year-old man was found dead in an apartment complex flooded by heavy rain from Ida's remnants. The staggering scope of the disaster shows that probably total damage from Ida could be $50 billion. So the National Guard troops are there in New Orleans right now. They're handing out meals, handing out water, handing out tarps to people in Louisiana. Um, in New Orleans, they've got seven places, that's what they said today on the news anyway, where people can get a meal and sit in air conditioning. The city's using 70 transit buses as, quote, cooling sites for residents to visit and charge their phones, get some water, and cool off because apparently temperatures there today were over 100 degrees, so very, very hot. So as these two specific tragedies were unfolding, like I said, and this is oftentimes what just happens with me and all things is I will be hearing the news. I listen to a lot of different news outlets every single day just because it's a passion and interest of mine, and I just kind of wonder about things. And so as what's going on in Haiti was happening and then New Orleans is happening with, of course, Afghanistan happening overseas, just kind of wondering what is it like? 
like? What is life like in those specific circumstances? How are people coping? Um, and what I heard f- from uh, multiple different news outlets is, especially in Louisiana, that people who chose to ride out the storm, that who rode out the hurricane, vowed that they will never do that again. In other words, they said, you know, we hunkered down this time, we stayed in our homes this time as we have in the past, but this was so scary. This was so terrifying. Homes and buildings were blown away by such fierce winds. And that was so scary. They say they will never do that again. Well, here I am in Colorado, landlocked, obviously. And um, there's a part of me listening to these stories going, why didn't they evacuate? Um, I have lived through multiple hurricanes. In Okinawa, we call them typhoons. But Okinawa is a teeny tiny island in the South Pacific, and there's nowhere to evacuate to. So we could not evacuate. And so buildings on Okinawa are built out of concrete and you just hunker down, but they would be awful. The, the, um, wind would be so fierce and it would be howling. We would lose power. Um, you know, tons of water would come in the windows and under the doors, um, literal bricks would blow around outside. Dumpsters would blow around. Cars would blow around. Glass doors would blow in. Um, thankfully never in my home, but in the homes of friends that happened. So, you know, I'm picturing this terrible storm in, in my mind. I'm wondering why don't people leave? Why would you not leave that? And of course, that's me sitting in landlocked Colorado um, in my air conditioned car as I'm listening to podcasts, you know, just sort of questioning the sanity of people who choose to ride out storms. Well, as you might imagine by now, perhaps you've thought this through, you know, better than I had, um, but there's good reasons. There are really good reasons that people have to stay. Sometimes it's not a choice, but it's a situation where they just are required by virtue of their circumstances that they do have to stay. So first of all, people with very low incomes or people who are living in poverty, people who have disabilities and people who are elderly are less likely to have technologies that might alert them to a disaster that is coming their way. So maybe a wildfire or a hurricane or a tornado or something, they might be lacking the technology that would alert them to the disaster that is impending. So they might not have that iPhone, or they might not have the adaptive technology on their smartphone. Or of course, someone who is older, they might not have that particular kind of technology too. So these are vulnerable populations that often don't actually know the gravity of the situation that they're heading for. And then secondly, um, if you decide, if you come to the conclusion, oh, I do need to leave, this is really serious, I need to prepare, well, then you have to wrestle with a whole new set of issues. You know, living, uh, leaving is not cheap. Leaving is not free. Um, on the one hand, you will have to miss work. This was interesting. I listened to a couple interviews of people in New Orleans, and these were people who have hourly jobs and their employers hadn't released them yet. They knew that they had a shift coming up. And even though the hurricane was bearing down on them, their bosses hadn't yet said, you know, we're going to close business. And so these particular people couldn't afford to not go into work. They were in a position where they could not lose their job and the their employers didn't shut down business until the very last minute. And so by the time their shifts were canceled, it was too late for them to evacuate. Now, of course, the population that's going to face this is going to be the more blue collar jobs, the more hourly wage kinds of jobs, the sort of essential workers that we've been talking about. Those are the kinds of jobs where people are facing that. You know, if you're actually the business owner yourself, or if you can work from home and you tell a commuter you've got some sort of business job, some sort of white collar job, you know, this is 
is what we've seen with COVID. If you have that kind of job and that kind of wealth, then you can work from home and you're likely to stay safer and healthier. So, um, you know, part of it was just that people couldn't afford to leave their jobs. Now for those, if they could, you know, if they're like, yeah, I can go ahead and take off or my, my business has closed, then they've got to think about, um, you know, they need to have a decent vehicle, a car that can drive away from a hurricane. And then they've got to pay for gas and maybe hotel rooms, or maybe they need to have friends or family in a city that is far away um, that they can go stay with. Of course, they've got to pay for food as they go. And so that's something that people who are a little bit wealthier, who have different means, they might be able to bear those kind of financial burdens. But oftentimes the poor cannot pay you know, for days and weeks ahead of food and housing and gas. Um, you know, It was noted that Hurricane Katrina hit at the exact same time Hurricane Katrina hit in late August when many lower income families are waiting on their first of the month checks to pay their bills. So just like this with Ida, people are at the end of the month, they're at the end of their budget, and they're waiting on their paycheck to come in. And they might not have the wiggle room or the means to flee, even if a hurricane is headed their way. So oftentimes what I've learned is that people want to leave, but they cannot. They don't have a choice. They don't have anywhere to go. Um, And I think of the episode that I just did, episode number 65 of all things, where um, I had the privilege of talking with Ben Soy about homelessness And this is really comparable to that situation. You know, it's all about the support system that somebody has, the family that they were born into, the people that they know, the means available to them for when a crisis hits. So in places like New Orleans and Haiti, poverty keeps people in a specific geographical location because they don't have the means to leave. And then, of course, if another disaster strikes, like what happened with Haiti and the earthquake and then the storm, people are driven further into poverty, further into despair, and it really becomes a vicious cycle where your lifestyle um, continues to decline and um, you have less and less hope of escaping. So those who live in poverty just to put it bluntly, are not as prepared for a disaster when it strikes as those who do not live in poverty, those who have different means. Now, the reality is also in these areas where disasters strike, homes are built more cheaply. So cheaper homes tend to be built without as strong foundations or their storm windows aren't as um, strong. They're less likely to be safe during tornadoes or during hurricanes. A lot of lower income neighborhoods um, are in low lying places and so they are hit the hardest by floods. Um, Another example would be in California, the extremely high cost of housing has encouraged building to take place in fire prone areas. So you can afford a home, a cheaper home, but it's going to be in a fire prone area. And that's very comparable then to New Orleans. You can afford a home, but it's going to be in a low lying flood zone. So income really does play a role um, in terms of the housing available to people and the way that they might improve their housing over time. What has been made clear over studies and research that I looked into um, this past week is that after a disaster, those who have money, the rich, um, those of means, they leave, but the poor then must remain. And what happens after a disaster here in the United States is that poverty rates climb by one percentage point in areas that are hit by super severe disasters. And so that suggests that people who aren't poor are migrating out and that people who are poor are migrating in. So when a disaster strikes, those who can leave and those who can't stay, and then even those who are impoverished as well might migrate then to that disaster-stricken area. 
What I found really interesting was that residents were more likely to migrate out of counties struck by natural disasters after FEMA was created. Um, so this is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and they um, come into communities when a disaster strikes. And what happens is they bring in federal funds that flow to victims of disasters, but they come mainly in the form of non-place-based programs. So something like unemployment insurance or food stamps. So that's support or income that's not tied to your location. And then what happens is that many people take that funding in their disaster-affected area and they move. So they'll take the money from FEMA and then they'll, they'll leave. So if they can get that kind of support, they, they will go ahead and leave, but then obviously others cannot. Now, New Orleans is a poverty-stricken area. There are many impoverished people. The median income in New Orleans is $38,423. Um, the New Orleans poverty rate, according to um, recent data, is 23.8%. Only 17% of New Orleans can access the internet through a smartphone, and 20% have no access to the internet whatsoever, and one out of five New Orleans households lacks access to a car. So those are some tough things. If you don't have a smartphone, if you don't have much income, if you don't have access to the internet, if you don't have a vehicle, these are obviously all things that are going to impact the way you ride out a hurricane. So for those who were born into poverty in New Orleans, for example, and they, are live, they live in it and they grow up in it and then they've got these disasters that happen, they have to ride storms out, they have to stay behind, and it becomes a really difficult cycle to escape. And so research just shows that the poor will face growing exposure to natural disasters because of this cycle that happens. And then um, for those who stay, life does get harder because then there's fewer jobs available, right? So all the buildings and all the um, you know, restaurants and schools and hospitals, whatever was there, those things are closed for a time or maybe they never reopen again. So life gets harder. There are fewer jobs. There are increased ex expenses. Um, you know, renters face instability because they don't know what their landlords are going to do, or there's a housing crisis, there's fewer options for housing, spiked rents, no vacancies, surging demand. Um, they're left behind in a dire situation where fewer resources and higher expenses. So anyway, starting to bring this episode to a close, kind of wanting to just round it out. You know, my, my curiosity was how do poverty and natural disasters interact with one another? And I sensed there was more to the story. Um, and now I do understand that there really is is that many people cannot leave um, their areas that where disaster strikes because of poverty. So how do we as followers of Christ respond? What do we do with that? I mean, we are inundated with these images. We are seeing through media, social media on our, our phones all day, every day. We see what's happening. We, knew, we all know what happened in New Orleans and what happened in Haiti. And it can feel paralyzing, can't it? Um, it can just feel like, boy, this is awful, but I don't know what to do. So I think where we want to start as believers is simply with caring for the poor, is not allowing ourselves to become so overwhelmed that we're paralyzed, or we just feel like, you know what, this is too big, and I don't know what to do, and I just really can't go there. But um, just really pressing into it and saying, no, these are image bearers. These are people created by God on purpose and for a purpose. These are um, some of them, my brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people who God has made. So how can I move toward them? 
them. And of course, the scriptures are just so clear about God's love for the poor and how he wants us to love the poor. You know, uh, Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Um, In Luke 6, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2, you know, remember the poor. That's the very thing I was eager to do. And our God, we know his character. We know his love. He is so kind. God's nature is to rescue. His desire is to serve the lowly. I mean, who he is, is our rescuer and our redeemer. He reaches down and lifts up those who cannot lift themselves. And so we want to strive to have a heart like that, right? We want to we want to take after our father in heaven and not be quick to maybe judge or belittle or distance ourselves from those who are going through disasters, but to be compassionate. So as far as participating in poverty alleviation in the United States, there are so many ways you could go. And I far be it from me um, to counsel you in your specific community. But I will say this, I do have firsthand knowledge of the efforts on behalf of Samaritan's Purse, the things that they do. And they went into New Orleans and they brought a ton of relief immediately. Um, And I've seen Samaritan's Purse respond well and responsibly throughout the United States and throughout the world. Now, I know there's various opinions about leaders of Samaritan's Purse and um, even the Christmas shoeboxes. Like uh, there's no organization that's going to be without some controversy, but I just want to say firsthand experience with um, friends who work to alleviate suffering through Samaritan's Purse and it's a great organization. I think another really great way to always seek um, to alleviate suffering is by giving to churches in the area that are hard hit. So maybe looking up some churches in New Orleans that are in your network or your denomination and calling them and saying, you know, how can we serve your body as you serve the community around you? Now, of course, alleviating poverty overseas, that can be really tricky too. We know so much of what's going on overseas because of the media, but it can be really paralyzing. You know, we look at Haiti and we go, oh my gosh, what can I do? Um, A book that I love that maybe you have read, it's a very well-known book, When Helping Hurts. That was incredibly helpful to me. You might check that book out. Um, A documentary I viewed a few years ago called Poverty Inc. Their tagline is, fighting poverty is big business, but who profits the most? Poverty Inc. was a very eye-opening documentary. And I'm going to link all of this in the show notes as I always do. Um, but I went to a screening, a private screening of Poverty Inc. a few years ago, and it was really cool because the filmmakers, who are not believers, it's not a Christian film, but they um, they were there and they did a Q&A. And so a question from the crowd was, okay, what is the best way to alleviate poverty? And their answer matches with research that I did today. Their answer was child sponsorships, that really to invest in organizations that provide sponsorship programs for children because those sponsorships sponsorships will provide wraparound services to a child. So just by way of example, because my family has multiple compassion children, we sponsor multiple children through Compassion International. That's what I'm most familiar with. And it is a really good child sponsorship program. What I can tell you is that, um, kids who are sponsored by compassion, they receive all of this wraparound care. So what do I mean by that? Meaning like they get love and care at a specific facility. They receive education. They receive nutritional supplements, healthcare. They receive Christian education and support, and they receive recreational opportunities. So if you're a compassion kid, on average, you will spend 4,000 hours in a safe and nurturing program, up to 1.5 years longer in high school, 18% more likely to be employed, 
as an adult, 40% more likely to go to high school, 85% more likely to graduate college, 75% more likely to become a leader in your community. And now I'm not necessarily trying to do a compassion international, um, advertisement, you know, my show is not sponsored in any way. Um, but I just would say that it has been a good experience for our family. And we have seen, um, how, when the children that we sponsor are in settings that are, um, devastated by some sort of natural disaster, the care that they get, the kids, um, because they're connected to that specific community center, they get food, they get healthcare, they get mosquito nets, they get vaccinations, um, they get what they need. And so I, you know, I've just seen it be really fruitful. And I will say that our family has spent some time in Thailand. One of our daughters is from Thailand. And so we've spent a significant amount of time with various um, churches and an orphanage in Thailand. And what was so cool when we were there a few years ago was interacting with staff of these churches and orphanages who grew up as compassion kids. So they were um, now adults who working in the community as social workers or pastors or staff at an orphanage. And they had been raised through Compassion International. Their, they and their siblings and their families received the support of Compassion International. So to see them as adults um, thriving and then caring for people in their community was really cool. So child sponsorship actually is a really great way to seek the alleviation of poverty. Um, and so when disasters strike, you know, then you are already invested in caring. Um, in a a holistic and long-term way for a child somewhere. Maybe not where that specific disaster happened, but chances are a disaster will come and you will have already invested in that that particular child and his or her family. So let me just close this out and say, when we see disasters like this happen, it can be so overwhelming and it can be paralyzing. I think, um, you know, sometimes we're quick to be like, well, I would have evacuated, you know, I would have avoided whatever. Um, some, I think sometimes we're quick to sort of soothe ourselves to think like, well, maybe these people have brought disaster on themselves, or I would not let that happen to me or whatever. But the truth is, reality is people are born into these communities and born into these settings and then oftentimes are trapped in a spiral of poverty and disaster and it gets harder and harder to get out. And so whether that's New Orleans or Haiti, this is a cycle that is very difficult to escape. And for you and I who were born in the United States in a community where we have privilege, where we have wealth, you know, where we were born is not was not up to us. That was just God's grace and kindness but we are not meant to spend it on ourselves. We are meant to spend it um, on the Lord and those that he loves. We are meant to love God and to love neighbor. So may we use our wealth and our stability and our peace um, and our, you know, the skills and the things that he's given us to pour out on behalf of the poor. You know, Jesus is clear about his heart here. He is a rescuer. He rescued you and I when we did not deserve it. When we were helpless, he helped us. And so we too, in his name, ought to reach out and help those um, when they are suffering. And in the United States, there's so many great organizations overseas. Child sponsorship is one really effective way. And of course, as those who can draw near to the throne of God, may we be praying for those who are in Afghanistan, New Orleans, Haiti, all every, um, so many other places around the globe where suffering has happened. Let's not neglect um, the gift that we have in going to the Lord in prayer. And of course, for those who make it here, refugees from Afghanistan or from Haiti or from wherever else, let us be the warm and welcoming saints that God has called us to be. 
Thank you, friends, for listening to All Things with me, Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. 